Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr Gemma Lewis is a psychiatric epidemiologist at UCL Division of Psychiatry. Her research focuses on the causes, treatment and prevention of depression and anxiety. She also investigates self-harm and suicidality, which often occur at the same time as depression and anxiety. As these mental health problems often begin during the teenage years, much of her research focuses on young people. Welcome, Gemma. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Cassie, and I'm delighted to be a part of the podcast. And we're really, really delighted to have you here. Your work hits every single note when it comes to what we're interested in, certainly at Tooled Up Education. You're on the front line of doing some extremely important primary research. We wanted to highlight some of that today and really ask you some core questions that I know everyone is very, very interested in when it comes to children and young people's mental health. I wanted to start with parents. I think it's commonly thought that parental mental health has a big impact on children's mental health. And I know this is an area that you've been working on a lot. So can we just sort of start the discussion there? Yeah, sure. So I think there's very, very strong evidence, and I I think few people would disagree, that there is an association between the mental health of parents and the mental health of their children. I think what's important to point out is that Whenever a child or a young person develops a mental health problem, there are always multiple different causes of that mental health problem. And the observation that the parents might have mental health problems will only ever be a part of the reason why a young person has a mental health problem and and a part of that causal chain. But the evidence suggests that it is an important part. So I think it's really important to get the message out there that it's really, really important for parents to get treatment for mental health problems and to learn to manage those mental health problems effectively. And that is one way that the risk to young people can be reduced, but but probably not eliminated. And these days, it seems people seem pretty literate when it comes to mental health problems and understanding when things are overwhelming or when they do need to seek help. Do you think that, you know, is it the case that parents are aware when there are issues or do you think people aren't sort of educated enough and spotting the signs of mental distress? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think that mental health literacy is something that has improved enormously over recent years, but I wouldn't say it was something that was high yet within the general population. So we often think of young people these days as being particularly literate about mental health problems. But often when I go to talk in schools, you know, you'll still see that that young people perhaps don't quite know what depression is or, or, or when they need help or don't quite know what anxiety is or when they need help. And I think it's the same. I think it's the same for most adults in the general population. So I think it's improved, but we definitely still need need to do more. Now, in the early years of childhood, I've read about in particular paternal depression being quite an interesting area of research. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So 
I did my PhD in Cardiff University a few years ago now, and I started looking at the links between depression in parents and depression in their children. And what I noticed was that the vast majority of research had looked at or examined what the risk of depression is in a young person when the mother has depression. And it's a really well-established finding that when mothers have depression, the risk of depression in the child is twice as high compared to when the mother does not have depression. But there had been very little research in fathers. So we did a study quite recently where we examined the link between depression in fathers and depression in their children. And we actually found that the risk was was exactly the same as for mothers. So fathers aren't less influential or less important to the development of, of the mental health of their children. And the mental health problems in fathers are just as important as mental health problems in mothers. So it's really important that we encourage both parents to get treatment wherever they can and to to attempt to control and manage those mental health problems because when a father has depression, that can increase the risk of their child getting depression to a similar extent as to when the mother has depression. And presumably with the coronavirus and lockdown, are you sort of quietly anticipating a greater exacerbation of mental health problems down the line given the rates of parental depression during lockdown or is that sort of a bit too pessimistic? Yeah I think so. So there hasn't been an awful lot of high quality research yet on the effects of of coronavirus on the mental health of young people but but there has been a bit and I think what we do see from that sort of high quality research is there has been a small increase in mental health problems among young people since the pandemic started and social distancing commenced. So I think that, and you know, definitely when you speak anecdotally to clinical colleagues who who work in clinical mental health services, you know, they are seeing increases in the number of young people with mental health problems. And that's probably reflected in the adult population as well. And in terms of moving on from parental mental health, I want to talk about what seems to be quite a sort of a stark contrast and disproportionality when it comes to girls' mental health. And from my reading, they seem to be disproportionately affected across the board and have rising levels of anxiety, depression, they've lower self-esteem. Talk us through that, Gemma. Yeah, that's really important. So I suppose one thing to clarify is it's not quite across the board. So there are some mental health problems that are actually more common in boys and men. So for example, psychosis is more common in men. Suicide rates are higher in men, which is something most people tend to know about. And things like ADHD and behavioral problems and conduct disorder are also more common in men. However, it's a really, really important thing to to get out there and talk about that. Girls and young women are twice as likely to experience depression, anxiety, and self-harm compared with men. And This gender difference begins to emerge around the age of 12 to 13 years of age. So around that time point, so during secondary school, during mid-adolescence, depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms and self-harm start to go up much, much more in girls than in boys. So there's, I mean, presumably you're an epidemiologist, so you're very interested in those trajectories for girls. But you know, there are so many parallel experiences between girls and boys. They both go to secondary school. They probably get a smartphone when they go off to secondary school. They're both dealing with puberty. Where is the qualitative difference? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think one thing to point out is that puberty is 
it's quite a different process in girls compared with boys and the hormonal consequences of puberty are, are quite different in girls compared with boys. So there are massive increases in, in estrogen that happen around the time of puberty in girls and, you know, re- relatively, you know, that doesn't really happen in boys. So there has been research on the link between these soaring levels of estrogen and depression in girls. There's also, you know, strong evidence that girls are likely to experience more stressful life events than boys. So girls are likely to experience things like abuse, some, you know, uh, stress and pressure at school. Girls are more likely to experience bullying. So there's all of that research, although, although I will say it's not the reasons why girls are more likely to get depression and anxiety compared with boys are not particularly well established. And that's something that we're trying to do more research on. And I think that, you know, in terms of early intervention, anyone hearing that sort of horrible disproportionality in gender differences would be thinking, what can we do? You know, and jumping forward a little bit to some of the protective assets that might be present in girls' lives. Can we just sort of exchange a few ideas there? Yeah, sure. So I'm a believer in us needing large-scale universal interventions to prevent mental health problems in teenagers. And what I mean by universal is that the intervention targets the whole teenage population. So rather than just targeting a high-risk subgroup or just targeting girls, I think that interventions, particularly in schools, are more likely to be effective when they include the whole population. So Universal interventions have been really successful at preventing certain types of cancer and cardiovascular disease. And they're large-scale public health interventions which target modifiable causes in the general population. So one thing that I'm interested in and would like to see in the future is similar large-scale universal interventions that reach the whole of the adolescent population and attempt to prevent the first onset of mental health problems. And presumably they would be placed within primary and prep settings, earlier settings. Yeah, so while I'm interested in, and lots of other researchers at the moment, and policymakers and and public health practitioners are interested in placing such interventions within schools. And the reason for that is that the vast majority of young people will attend school. So it's the best setting to situate a universal intervention, which will have the greatest potential of reaching all young people. So that's the appeal, really, of locating interventions within schools. And the extraordinary thing is that a lot of the potential intervention activity that you might be referring to it's not that difficult to put in place, is it? You know, the messaging, we know what it should be. And we know that there are evidence-based resources or things that can be teacher-led that can be very effective. Yes, I think that's a good point. So I think although there's lots we don't know about the causes of depression, anxiety and self-harm in young people, I think you are right that there is strong evidence for certain causes. So we were talking about mental health in parents. Now, that's not something that's going to be really susceptible to intervening upon, for example, within the school setting. But there are other risk factors for which there are also strong evidence, like physical activity. So, you know, there's really good evidence that higher levels of physical activity and lower levels of sedentary behavior 
can be protective against the development of depression and anxiety. So that is one thing that we could think about encouraging within the school setting. Also, you know, bullying, you know, there's really good evidence that bullying is is linked to the onset of depression, anxiety and self-harm in young people. So most schools have anti-bullying policies, but really kind of seeing them implemented effectively across the whole of the school is another thing that we can definitely do. I think when it comes to bullying, everyone's conscious of the sort of horrible long-term implications, you know, for mental health. But it seems to be a sort of a, a vague term often in schools. You know, we all want to be kind to each other. We want to promote kindness. But somehow the, the bullying ends up outside often of the school environment onto smartphones. And then there seems to be a lot of ambivalence as to whose job it is in terms of monitoring that behavior and addressing it. Yeah, I think that's true. So I think, you know, schools are very, very clear and committed to reducing bullying that takes place within the school environment, uh, even within the school day. But I think, yes, there is a sort of confusion definitely about, about cyberbullying, which which has also been linked to increases in mental health problems. So it is really important that we target and reduce cyberbullying, even though the ways of doing that are, are perhaps not well established, you know, just like negative effects of the internet and social media for everybody across the whole of the population. It's a really, really difficult thing to try to mitigate. The universal intervention that you sort of dream of in in schools, again, would you be able to list the kind of the modular names of, of topics that you'd like to see in there? Yeah, that's a good question. So definitely, I think we have really strong evidence for physical activity, for bullying, also for sexual harassment, which is another thing that girls experience more of and is concerningly high within the secondary school aged population. I'm soon going to start a project looking at academic pressure and academic stresses and whether they are associated with mental health problems in young people. And that is obviously a risk factor that might be difficult to target within the school environment, but it's something that one could see that you know there are ways that we could reduce academic pressure and academic stresses on young people, even though at the moment we don't have a good understanding of whether exposure to academic pressure causes mental health problems or, or not. So we do need more research in that area. Another project we've got going on at the moment is developing and informing universal interventions to make the school environment more inclusive for young people who are sexual or gender minorities. So sexual gender minorities, LGBTQ young people, are at higher risk of depression, anxiety and self-harm. But there's evidence that general anti-bullying policies aren't as effective as inclusive anti-bullying policies, which teach students and teachers that, you know, young people shouldn't be discriminated against, excluded or bullied based on their sexual gender identity. So within a school environment, you talk about that inclusivity, you know, if you were leading a secondary school, what measures can you put in place to be very explicitly inclusive? How do you create a culture that enables young teenagers from that particular identity group to feel that they are really supported? Yeah, so I think it's really, really important that teachers look at and try to change the whole school culture. So not just acting within little pockets or little subgroups of young people, but really trying to make that whole school culture, the wider school environment, more inclusive. 
And we're doing a piece of research at the moment, and we've put together evidence in a few different ways that that can happen. So firstly, it's inclusive anti-bullying, harassment and discrimination policies. So it's developing within the school inclusivity or weaving inclusivity into those policies. So young people should not be bullied, but young people should also not be bullied, harassed or discriminated against based on their sexual or gender identity. The other really important thing, which there's really good good evidence for, is developing inclusive curriculums. So, you know, very often, so we've done really interesting work with sexual gender minority young people who often talk about feeling excluded from the curriculum. So, for example, so an inclusive curriculum would include greater coverage of historical events, historical figures, visible role models, and, you know, important LGBTQ people and how they have benefited and contributed to society. I think it's really important that sexual and gender diversity is viewed through a positive lens and a lens of equality relative to heterosexual and and cisgender people, which I don't think it quite is yet in schools and also in society in general, of course. I want to return to your point about academic pressure, playing the sort of devil's advocate for the moment. I was struck by the fact that when young people could sit regular physical GCSE papers, A-levels, there was a big, big talk about academic pressure, that they were under too much pressure, should we cancel GCSEs? Then when we did end up in a situation where exams were cancelled, apparently that pressure was too much as well. And it just strikes me as... Academic pressure seems such an easy thing to land on and blame when it comes to young people's mental health. Yeah, definitely. Well, actually, the evidence about what happened to young people's mental health problems when schools were closed and obviously academic pressure was substantially reduced is a bit inconsistent, actually. So I think there was some evidence from Japan that actually mental health problems in young people went down when the schools closed. And I am aware of another study from Bristol University, which found a similar thing. So it could be that we can't rule out the possibility that the schools closing and academic pressure reducing was good for the mental health of young people. However, obviously, when that happened, there were lots of other consequences as well. So young people were separated from their friends, from their peers, from social support, which might have led to certain increases in social isolation. So it's important to remember this complexity about mental health problems, which is that it will never, well, it's very unlikely to ever be one thing that is causing something as complex as a mental health problem in a young person. Isn't it the case that, I mean, there are plenty of people around the country who often say, you know, but You know, back in the day, you know, we were all under pressure. Exams were arguably harder, but we didn't see these rates of poor mental health in young people. Is that sort of something that isn't really, has no basis? Yeah, it's a good point. So as I mentioned, I'm going to be starting a project looking at the association between academic pressure and mental health problems in young people next March. And whilst I was preparing the project, that question did come up a lot, actually. So what is academic pressure? You know, isn't a bit of pressure good for us? You know, not just young people, but adults as well and everybody. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think that that is true. But obviously, when any form of pressure or stress reaches a certain level, it will become bad for the mental health and well-being of the population in general. Now, 
To answer your question about what has happened and what has changed with academic pressure and schools over over recent years, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that levels of academic pressure used to be higher, when in fact, the evidence suggests that they used to be lower, and that levels of academic pressure have have increased, actually, in recent decades. And that's probably due to a few reasons, or there are a few ideas about that, even though the evidence isn't particularly strong. So there have been, you know, GCSE reforms and massive increases in the number and the intensity of tests that young people have to do. There's also been this increased encouragement or pressure placed on young people to attend university, which certainly wasn't around even when I was in school and definitely when, you know, my parents or grandparents were in school. So there's that increased pressure to achieve and to succeed within this knowledge-based economy, which I think has led to an increase in the academic pressure that young people experience. It's not as though the options beyond university haven't been discussed and promoted, you know, on that point. I mean, we have degree apprenticeships, we have colleges, we have university technical colleges, but it seems culturally we always seem to revert back to valuing attendance at university as a sort of a much higher goal. I think that that's, yeah, a really important point and, you know, something that, you know, I personally think is is quite a damaging message to send to young people, you know, that certain professions are valued over others. And that, you know, this idea, which was emerging at the time that I left school, that, you know, everybody needs to go to university. And and if you don't, that's a bad thing. You know, I think that, you know, I can I can certainly see how that could be detrimental for, for young people's mental health. So I think what you're looking at, or you will look at in your study as well, are probably the wider issues around messaging, around aspiration, about future outcomes, the careers market, all of that probably needs a little bit of looking at. I definitely agree. And whilst developing my project, which, you know, hasn't started yet, so I haven't really looked into these things in detail, but it's still interesting to talk about them. We did some really interesting work with teachers and careers and careers advice is something that they mentioned quite a lot. So, you know, the teachers were saying that it's really important in schools to give really broad careers advice to young people and to value lots of different professions and to encourage young people to pursue things that they find rewarding or that they like rather than driving home this message that it's all about academic achievement and it's all about getting into a good university and this is what everybody needs to do. So I think that sort of broad approach to careers advice, broad inclusive equal approach to careers advice within schools is something that we think could be important. But yeah, we haven't started investigating that yet, but that's definitely one of our hypotheses. Now, moving on to the topic of university, I think in recent years, I've been struck by, if you look at the headlines around university students' mental health, they seem quite negative, you know, strings of sort of suicides during the first year in particular universities, you know, it seemed quite stark. Is that a sort of an exaggeration to say that that transitional year into uni seems to be, for some young people, quite difficult? I don't think that is an exaggeration, actually. I think that there's two things we need to think about when considering the mental health of university students. So I think the first thing to think about is that depression, anxiety, and self-harm have gone up in the whole general population of young people, particularly in girls and young women. So what that means is that you'll see those increases in the population who did go to university, 
and in the population who did not go to university. I think sometimes the young people who do go to university, uh, you know, universities are environments where there's lots of research going on, you know, the students become a sort of captive audience in a way, and we, you know, we're able to kind of talk about students in a more homogenous way than we're able to talk about other people within the general population. So I think that it's important to point out that depression, anxiety and self-harm have gone up in the entire population of, of young people, particularly in girls and young women. However, we recently did a piece of research for the Department for Education where we compared symptoms of depression and anxiety in young people who attended higher education and young people who had not attended higher education. And what we found was that there was a small difference. So young people who were studying within higher education in the UK did have higher levels of depression and anxiety compared with young people who were not studying within higher education. So it does seem as though there is something there within the higher education environment that is perhaps leading to stress and pressure on young people, which is affecting their mental health. That's what our piece of research seemed to show. Does the mental health of students within higher education, does it start off in general terms, is it worse upon entry? And does it improve over the three or four years they're there? Or is it is there any sort of indications that it's just a sort of consistent pattern? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because that was something I wanted to add, actually. So one of the really nice things about the study that we've just done is that we were able to look at, so you used the word trajectories earlier. So we were able to look at the trajectory of depression and anxiety in young people from secondary school age all the way up to university age. And what we saw was that there was some evidence at some time points that young people who would later go to university actually had more symptoms of depression and anxiety than those who would not later go to university when they were in school. So there was that observation, even though it was a bit inconsistent across the two data sets and the different time points we looked at, but there was an indication that that could be happening. What was more robust is that when we looked at the mental health of young people in higher education and not, and we can controlled for their prior levels of depression. So in a way, we hope to have eliminated any influence of any prior differences in mental health and just looked at the difference that occurred when they were in uni or not. We still saw evidence that those who were in higher education had higher levels of depression and anxiety. And that was during their first year, as you say. So it could be there is something to do with that transition So we looked at mental health problems only among young people, I should say, because it was a young person's cohort. So obviously there are students who are who are older as well, but we just looked in the in the young person population. And during that first year of higher education, they were experiencing more symptoms of depression and anxiety. It's important to also point out that we also looked at this difference by the time young people were 25 years of age. So by that time point, higher education had ended for the vast majority of these young people. And interestingly, we didn't see any difference between the two groups anymore. So by the time young people were 25, there was no difference in depression or anxiety between the groups who had or had not gone to university. So perhaps it is something to do with the transition and perhaps the stress and pressure of of achieving or being away from, from home or other support networks during university. 
It does remind me, you know, certainly within the criminological literature on entry to prison. I know it's not not quite the same, <laughs> but we do talk about entry shock and the that coping. You know, people are at their most vulnerable at the point of entry into a new institution, and that the induction processes need to be really strong over the first few weeks to enable you know a reduction in mental distress I'm just sort of mulling that over in my own mind yeah that's a really interesting point and obviously not something you know that I think I well I certainly had ever had ever thought about because you know this is uh, speaks to the value of these sort of cross-disciplinary conversations because well I'm sure a few people have you know equated the entry to prison to the entry to school or university but it does seem like there is an potentially interesting parallel there in terms of induction support because there is a bit of research which suggests that the transition to secondary school is also related to a potential increase in mental health problems. So I think there is something uh, interesting to think about there and perhaps strengthening induction support, as you called it, within higher education is something that we could work on. I mean, certainly prisons have induction wings. You know, obviously there was a big movement within criminology to reduce mental distress, suicide, self-harm. And the sort of the inductive processes were meaningfully changed and transformed and it did have an impact. But the other thing is the wider point about identity. I think, you know, from my own work, I know that entry to a new institution coupled with sort of physical mobility they're moving to a, a new place in the country new support now everything is refreshed and has to be recalibrated that that does have an impact on one's sense of self in the world you know and that takes time to recalibrate yeah definitely and uh, you know it sounds like there's really interesting parallels there i think that it's probably important to point out or something that i've just thought about is you know going to university for for many young people is often fantastic and positive experience but I think as you say you know there are going to be smaller groups or pockets of young people who do for whatever reason experience difficulties with with that transition. Gemma what's your view on screening you know again you know sorry to use a parallel from criminology but you know we're we're very keen on screening questionnaires when people move into particular institutional settings in some ways I don't really understand why universities aren't screening for people's you know vulnerability so that they can really put in place targeted interventions yeah I know what you mean there isn't particularly strong evidence that that screening leads to you know massive decreases in levels of depression and anxiety within the general population even though as you say it's quite difficult to wrap your head around well well why you know why wouldn't it if we just get the people at high risk and we ensure that they're treated surely that would be helpful i think with depression and anxiety it's quite hard to pick out the point at which somebody is experiencing problems and needs treatment, particularly before they get to that point. So it often is quite clear when somebody needs clinical treatment, when they need psychological therapies or antidepressants. But I think, you know, prior to that level of severity, it's quite difficult to know when to intervene in order to prevent a episode of depression and anxiety from happening. So my argument is if you target an intervention at the entire population, then you're more likely to lower average levels of depression and anxiety for everybody, thereby capturing the people at high risk rather than trying to find those people at high risk. 
I really like your approach. It makes much more sense because you're not sort of making it a niche idea. It's everyone's job. And then if you educate everyone, it's much more likely that peers are able to be much more supportive of their friend, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It sort of has a diffusive effect, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think that one surprising thing was, so often, you know, as you were just getting at, or, you know, often it's sort of easier for us to think about targeting high risk groups. That seems very straightforward to understand and it seems like it'll be effective. And I've often thought about the idea of universal interventions being slightly more difficult to explain or get going. But actually, when you talk to young people, they actually really seem to like the idea of universal interventions. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, young people is particularly when they're in school, they often don't like being selected or, you know, highlighted or separated from the rest of the group. And they really like the idea of an intervention being universal because it doesn't single out young people. And presumably reduces pressure because it's a talking point, you know, throughout the school. I've read about the power of and the efficacy of peer led interventions, which I'm very excited about. You know, the young people having a lot of agency and contribution to the sorts of interventions that you might be describing. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's a, a really great idea and there is evidence that whole school interventions which involve peer-led components can lead to a reduction in mental health problems. You know, the other thing is it does seem to me from the work that we've done with young people and when I go out and talk to young people in schools about mental health that that's what they want and it's really, really important when designing and implementing any form of intervention that the people who are involved in that intervention are engaged and they have responsibility and they have input. And whenever you're talking about interventions in schools, you are going to be talking about young people having that input and that agency and that involvement. So I think that it's a really, really important idea and something that we should aim to do more of. So Gemma, we want to stay abreast of all the work that you're doing. First of all, how do we get hold of the wonderful report that you did on university transition that we just talked about? Yeah, so that report is publicly available, even though it's not particularly easy to find. So you can find it on my Twitter feed, Gemma Lewis 13. You can also find it on the Department for Education's website and also on the website for the UCL Institute of Education. So it definitely, it's out there and it's publicly available. It did come up on a Google search for me, actually, when I just put my name and higher education, mental health into Google. Lovely. Well, we'll find it and we will share it across all of our schools. So thank you for that. And tell us about the chronology of your other research projects so that we can be sure to get back in touch with you when you finish those. Yeah, so we're working on what will hopefully be a really helpful piece of research at the moment where we're doing a review of different types of inclusive interventions that schools can implement in order to improve the mental health of sexual and gender minority young people. And that review is funded by the Wellcome Trust through their Active Ingredients Commission. So that is a commission that is trying to identify the aspects of interventions which are likely to be most effective at preventing depression and anxiety in young people. So the active ingredient we're looking at is making the school environment more inclusive for LGBTQ young people. So that project will be being published over the next few months. And yes, so my research, also funded by the Wellcome Trust, 
on academic pressure and adolescent mental health will be starting in March. So hopefully we can uh, get some findings out from that within the next year or so. Fantastic. And one last question. Will that work that you just mentioned on LGBTQ plus teenagers, will it look at the barriers as to potentially why schools might resist or struggle with that notion of inclusivity? Yes, it will. And I think it's a really important point. So that's something that has been highlighted to us as really important. And it's something that we're going to to write about in the report. So, you know, the first barrier that schools are going to talk about is time and also financial resources. And, you know, they're really important, really important barriers to the implementation of any of anything practical within schools. So it's something that we really need to, to think carefully about and to work on. And it's important that we have engagement from uh, more widely, so, so from, some, from policymakers as well. And there are also other barriers that, that schools may face, for example, from, from the wider community. So there is evidence that these interventions for sexual and gender minorities can be more difficult to implement in communities which are part of certain religious groups or in communities which are perhaps situated in smaller, more rural areas. So, you know, there are important barriers, but there are also ways to work together with people to reduce those barriers. Okay, well, we look forward very much to all of those wonderful pieces of work that are so badly needed. Thank you so much for everything that you do, Gemma, and we look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you so much. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.